Yesterday was the Auburn-Alabama game, and I usually uh, try to find some appropriate scripture. Thinking about it, uh, Genesis 10.10 seemed appropriate. In the beginning was Eric. Exodus 2.11, the children of Israel journeyed from Ramsey. 2 Samuel 14.6, and they two strove together in the field. And one said, Genesis 23.13, I will give you money for the field. <laughs> and the Lord said, Deuteronomy 16, 28.16, Cursed shalt thou be in the field. And another said, uh, <clears throat> 13, Matthew 13.26, Didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? Whence then hath it these tares? An enemy hath done this. And the moral, if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. <laughs> We're dealing with the 15th chapter of uh, St. Mark. And uh, we come to this section of Mark's Gospel, which contains the history of the most important and solemn event that ever took place in the world. John Piper, in his book, The Pleasures of God, gives a parable. In his parable, he pictures a country that has been invaded and taken over by a wicked prince. The prince has enslaved the people of the nation, and he has them working at slave labor in a coal mine. In order to get to the coal mine, they have to travel across a deep crevice, and the uh, wicked prince has built a trestle across this crevice, and every morning the people are carried across to do slave labor in the mine, and then they are brought back at night. There are only two free men in the entire nation, a father and a son. They live in a high crevice, inaccessible, above the trestle, and they hate uh, that trestle because of the slavery that it involves the people in, and finally they determined to blow up the trestle. And as they strategize, it becomes apparent that because of the way the trestle is guarded very carefully, that only one of them can go, and uh, that he will have to uh, go out on the trestle carrying the explosives. There will be not, there will not be enough time between his planting the explosive there and the guards returning to that area for him to get away. So he'll have to be blown up with the explosives. He'll have to sacrifice his life. Uh, the night came and uh, they were to do the deed this night. Their hearts were pounding with joy. It was a hard plan. Uh, because it would require the sacrifice of the son, he would detonate the explosives by hand and make sure the trestle was blown up. But they believed in heaven and they loved the people of the land, so the honor of this sacrifice made their hearts leap with joy. They folded the map of their strategy, they stood from the table, they embraced each other. When the young man got to the door, he turned with the explosive strapped to his back, looked at the old man and said, I love you, Father. The old man took a deep breath with joy and said, I love you too, son. 
Well, that parable speaks to the events recorded here in this passage and the interaction between the father and the son in delivering men from their enslavement. It starts off with the hearing uh, before Pilate of Jesus. It says in verse 1, Straightway the morning, in the morning the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate's the Roman governor over Judea, appointed by the emperor of Rome. And uh, Pilate is amazed at Jesus' silence before his accusers. He answers Pilate himself, but he doesn't really defend himself before his accusers. In verse 2, Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? This was the accusation that had been made against him, that he's a rival king, he's guilty of sedition. And uh, Jesus answers, and uh, he says, he answering said unto him, Thou sayest it, which is, that's an idiomatic phrase, like our, yes, just as you said. Yes, I am a king. We're told in John's gospel, he went on to add, but my kingdom is not of this world. It's not an earthly kingdom. I'm no threat to you. Uh, else would my servants fight. It's a different kind of kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, where he reigns over the hearts of men. But as his accusers go on to accuse him with many accusations, he doesn't defend himself. Verse 3, the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. At this point, Pilate makes a proposition to the crowd. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. He knows that the Jewish leaders have delivered him out of jealousy. And uh, Pilate is looking for some way out where he can set Jesus free. And he hits upon a plan. In uh, verse 6, At the feast he released normally unto them one prisoner whom they desired. And there was one named Barabbas which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And uh, the multitude, crying aloud, began to desire Pilate to do as he had ever done unto them, to follow this custom of delivering one of the prisoners to them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? He gives them a choice. And it says, he did this for he knew that the chief priest had delivered him for envy. He, uh, he thinks he will secure Jesus' release by giving them a choice between Jesus, whom he knew to be very popular with the people, although hated by the priests, or Barabbas, this robber and murderer, public enemy number one. Surely they will choose Jesus, he thinks. By restricting the choice to those two, he'll be able to deliver him. But the chief priests, meanwhile, have stirred up the crowd, and my mob psychology takes over. Verse 11, but the chief priests moved the people 
that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And that prevails. They cry for Barabbas. So Pilate's effort fails here. Now there's a parallel. And remember that God designed all of this according to plan. For instance, uh, Isaiah 53 prophesied about this silence of Jesus. The, the, the whole passage of Isaiah 53 is dealing, uh, written 750 B.C. By, by Isaiah the prophet, is dealing with the Messiah. It says that he will be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Uh, he was, is despised of the people. It says he is led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Goes on to speak of him being buried in a rich man's tomb, and then of his resurrection. After that, he prolongs his days. And uh, that uh, so this silence was prophesied. All of these events were planned out by God. And uh, yet, man is responsible. It's not that man is a robot and not responsible for his evil deeds. Why would God plan for the release of Barabbas? The choice between Barabbas and Jesus. Well, the obvious parallel, if you think about it. Here the innocent one suffers in the place of the guilty one. If it's a choice between Barabbas or Jesus, Jesus is innocent, Barabbas is guilty. But Jesus dies in the stead of Barabbas. And Barabbas is set free. Well, you and I are Barabbas. And uh, just as Jesus literally took Barabbas' place, the innocent for the guilty, he took your place and my place. And we're set free from our guilt and the bondage of sin as our natures are changed. But we have to do something. <clears throat> Barabbas was automatically set free. He didn't have to do anything. You and I have to personally place our faith in Jesus Christ and surrender our will to Christ in faith and repentance before our release is effected. Christ died in our stead, but we must appropriate that by repentance and faith. Well, Pilate asked the crowd about Jesus. What shall I do with Jesus? In verse 12, Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? You notice what he's doing? He's asking the crowd what he shall do with Jesus. That's awful. So many people do that. I did that for years. Don't ask the crowd what you should do with Jesus. You determine what you will do with Jesus. Don't let the crowd determine for you what you will do with Jesus. Well, the crowd... Uh, cries out to crucify him. In verse 13, they cried out again, crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, why, what evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, crucify him. They realize his vacillation here in asking them what to do with Jesus. And uh, manipulated by their artful leaders here, they cry out for Jesus' crucifixion, which is what was to be done to Barabbas. Well, it says, verse 15, So Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus 
when he had scourged him to be crucified, first he scourges him. This is a final effort on Pilate's part to release Jesus. He scourges him, which was a terrible flaying. It would rip the skin off. Often men would die under this flaying. And then he places him before the crowd. And the soldiers have, have dressed him up in a, a robe and put a crown of thorns on him. And Pilate presents him and says, Behold the man, Eke homo, behold the man. And uh, he's playing on the crowd's pity. Surely he's suffered enough. What a pathetic figure. Surely you don't want me to crucify him. But uh, they insist. And so uh, he delivers him. As, when you read John's Gospel, there's a crucial point in there where the crowd, uh, the leaders in the crowd, cry out and say, If you release this man... You are no friend of Caesar's. And that's, when he heard that, Pilate decided to deliver Jesus to be crucified. He realized that it could mean his position, that these religious leaders would report back to Caesar and say that Pilate was harboring a seditionist, He realized that uh, these religious leaders could stir up the crowd into a riot. Rome, the Jewish people were some of the most unmanageable of all of Rome's subjects. And the emperors looked very dimly on riots and insurrection. And so Pilate realized the crucial situation that he was in, in terms of maintaining his position, keeping his job that he'd worked hard to achieve. And he was not willing to pay that price in order to try to set Jesus free. Well, how modern. <clears throat> Thousands have rejected Christ uh, in order to retain their position with their friends or in their company or whatever it might be. I think of a man present today who is told by his company, by his boss, If you don't go along with our way of doing business, with our way of entertaining our customers, if you won't participate with that, you will never advance in this company. You have to make a choice. Well, the man made the choice to follow Christ. If he never advanced in the company, that was all right. He didn't have to advance in the company. He did have to follow Christ. That man is now the president of the company. God interestingly reversed things in that particular case. But many, many people make the the same choice that Pilate made. They'll go with Christ so far, but no further because of the cost. Well, he delivers Jesus to be crucified, and the soldiers mock him. Verse 16, the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium. They called together the whole band. They clothed him with purple and planted a crown of thorns and put it about his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him on the head with a reed, and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees, worshipped him. Savagery begets savagery. And then they deliver him to be crucified, lead him out to be crucified. Verse 20, When they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him, put his own clothes on him, led him out to crucify him, and they compel one Simon a Cyrenian, 
who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. As he starts off, Jesus has to carry his own cross. And the crossbar of the cross that was laid on his shoulders weighed about 100 pounds. He's weakened from loss of blood, from the fleeing. And he stumbles and falls after a little way. And uh, the soldiers are not about to carry the cross for him. They simply commandeer a man in the crowd standing nearby, Simon. They say, Simon, come here. You carry the cross. And so he has to pick up Jesus' cross and carry it. Apparently, uh, Simon is well known to in the Christian community later on, as Mark writes this, because he says, the father of Alexander and Rufus, you know. And he can just refer to him in that way. Very possibly Simon and his sons became Christians and are part of the Christian community. There was a, one of, one of the great ministers of all history was a man by the name of Charles Simeon. Simeon uh, is called the father of evangelicalism, the father of what we call the evangelical faith today. The evangelical faith, those who stand by the great historic doctrines of Christianity versus liberalism that doesn't hesitate to throw out the inspiration of the Bible, the atonement, the resurrection, anything that uh, gets in the way of being accepted. But evangelicals say, no, no, we believe it as just as stated, and we stand by it. And you can say that, uh, uh, that that's not intellectual or whatever you want to, but this is where we plant our feet. Charles Simeon, ordained in uh, 1780 uh, in England, was appointed by, as a young man, 23 years of age, 1782, was appointed to the Church of the Holy Trinity, which was right by the campus of Cambridge University. Cambridge was a seat of liberalism, as you can imagine. And uh, the divinity school there was very liberal. And Simeon was a despised figure. The people of the church, the church had been pastored by a liberal. They wouldn't come to hear him preach. But in those days, you owned your pew. So not only did they not come to hear him preach, they locked their pews. And no one was allowed to sit in their pews. So the only place you could sit in his church was in the aisles. No one on the university campus wanted to be seen walking with him. Uh, He says, uh, I remember the time that I was quite surprised that a fellow of my own college ventured to walk with me for a quarter of an hour on the grass plot before Clare Hall. For many years after I began my ministry, I was as a man wondered at. One day, under that kind of a burden, he asked God for some encouraging word and opened his Bible. He says, the first text which caught my eye was this. They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. He says, you know, Simon is the same as Simeon, same name. What a word of instruction was here. What a blessed hint for my encouragement to have a cross laid upon me that I might bear it after Jesus. What a privilege. It was enough. Now I could leap and sing for joy as one whom Jesus was honoring with a participation in his suffering. 
Well, you and I are called to bear Christ's cross and to come after him. It is a privilege, just as Simeon understood there. We come to the crucifying of Jesus, verse 22. And they bring him into the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. The Latin for that is Calvarium, Calvary. And uh, it says, They gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. This was to deaden the pain. They would give that to criminals who were to be crucified to deaden their sensitivity to the pain. But Jesus doesn't accept such deadening of the pain. Verse 24, And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, that every man, what every man should take. The soldiers who crucify him cast lots for his clothes, for particularly his cloak. The people who are crucified with him are mentioned. Verse 25, it was the third hour they crucified him, and the superscription of his accusation was written over, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand, the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. That's a quote from Isaiah 53. Again, God designing all of this. Why would he have his son crucified between two thieves? Those two thieves are representative men. They represent the whole human race. All of us are dying thieves. All of us have robbed God of his glory. We have taken our lives, used them as if they were our own in ways that he told us not to do. We're all dying thieves. We've all broken God's law. But the cross of Christ is in the middle. It divides the whole human race into two groups of dying thieves. Each thief represents a part of the human race. One of those thieves had a change of heart. Initially, they both railed on him, we're told. But then we're told that one of them had a change of heart. Luke tells us, here, here it says that the passers-by reviled Jesus, verse 29, they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others himself, he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And uh, they, that, they that were crucified with him reviled him. But Luke gives something else. He says, after a while, one of those thieves grew silent. And then he rebuked the other thief. And he said, don't you fear God? You and I are in the same condemnation. We're dying here. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. We're getting exactly what we deserve. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And then he turns his head to Jesus, and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. What's he saying? He's saying, Lord, I believe your claims. 
I believe you are a king and you're going to enter your kingdom. And I don't understand all of it, but I'm casting myself on you for mercy. And Jesus said, you've got it. You are forgiven. Why would God have his son die between two thieves and one thief make that kind of decision at the last second? To picture so plainly the way of salvation. All of us are dying thieves. But if we will cast ourselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ who died on that central cross, believing his claims, acknowledging our guilt, repentance and faith, then we are forgiven. No matter what we've done, no matter how late in life it is, we are forgiven. And we have that same promise that we will be with him in paradise. That's why God had his son die between two thieves. What could be clearer than the way of salvation is presented there? wonder what moved that thief to that decision. Obviously, God's spirit. But what did he use? Could be... The way Jesus was responding to the situation. Writers tell us that when being crucified, it was customary for the men being crucified to curse at those around them, to spit upon them. But Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Maybe that's what God used to move him to repentance. Well, this point is a supernatural darkness. Preternatural darkness. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, from noon to 3 p.m. Darkness. Just darkness. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature sent. And then there's the forsaking by the Father in verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Luther meditated on that verse for hours. And then he remarked, God, forsaken by God, who can understand it? Spurgeon said, I do not think the records of time contain a sentence more full of anguish. God did desert him. He was forsaken of God. The desertion was real. I read in a, a uh, Reader's Digest recently about... An event that occurred in Auckland, New Zealand, in August of 90. A little girl was getting out of the car. Her mother was driving. And she leaned back in to say something to her mother. And a gasoline tanker carrying 9,000 gallons of gasoline swerved to avoid a taxi that pulled out and hit the back of the car that the little girl was leaning into. Uh, the car uh, burst in flame, the tanker burst in flame, and the little girl in all of the crash was caught under the wheels of the tractor trailer. Flames were shooting up into the air 150 feet, explosions occurring one after another. The 
the uh, <clears throat> firefighters arrived on the scene and, and tried to contain the fire in that area. And suddenly they heard a whine, a high whine, and saw a hand wave under the tractor trailer, looked under there and saw the little girl. One of the firefighters just said to the others, cover me, and he dove in under there. In this inferno, just a flaming inferno, and uh, tried to pull her loose, but she was trapped under the wheel, and he couldn't get her loose. And she said, please, please don't leave me. And he said, I promise I won't leave you. They covered them with water and the flames would burst in on them. And, and just for an hour, for an hour, he stayed there in that inferno, covering her with his body while they brought in airbags. And they lifted that tractor trailer with these airbags and got her out from there. He stayed with her. He said, they called him to come out. He said, no, I promised I'd stay here. But God left his son in the inferno that his son was going through. Why? Why did he do that? Because his son was made sin for us. That Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the ultimate consequence of suffering for sin is to be forsaken of God in an in a inferno we can't imagine and to have it go on and on and on. And Christ is undergoing that on the cross for us. So God has to forsake it because he's punishing our sin. Goodness. All that was planned. It says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Isaiah 53. Thou hast put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. It didn't please him to put his son through that. Think of how the father must have felt. And yet he was pleased to do it for us. He was willing to do it for us. Uh, as we say, all this was <clears throat> predicted. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 22. I mean, excuse me, Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 1. David wrote this psalm about 1,000 B.C. Notice how it starts off. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A thousand years ahead, the words Jesus would speak on the cross. Verse 6. I'm a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip in mockery. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighteth in him. Verse 16, Dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 17, I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. Verse 18, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. All of this plan. The details given before. What Jesus would say, what his enemies would say, what they would do. The crowd misinterprets this cry in verse 35. 
Some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calls Elias Elijah. They misunderstood. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come and take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. He dies. At this point, something else supernatural takes place in verse 38. The veil of the temple that separated the holiest of all, or the holy of holies, from the holy place in the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom, invisible hands laying hold of it and rending it, as God shows, now by the death of my son, the way into my presence is open. No longer do you have to offer sacrifices or go through an earthly high priest. The way is open now through my son's death, a sacrifice adequate. Once for all, given. Well, we read this. Uh, how do we respond? Well, we need to realize again that we're the dying thief. And we respond by committing our lives in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. Trusting him. Again, uh, by falling on our faces. Uh, we're Barabbas. We've been released if we put our trust in Christ. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we, spotless Lamb of God, was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Fall on our faces and worship him. Worship the Father. And we follow him by taking up the cross. We're Simeon, called to carry his cross, or Simon. And take up the cross and follow him. Or we're Pilate, faced with a very costly choice. Have you made the choice to follow Christ? you've not made that choice, you're Pilate, faced with a choice. Don't let the crowd determine what you do with Jesus. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, if you have never really surrendered your will to Jesus Christ, but you believe, as that dying thief believed, that he's who he claimed to be, a king, and he has a kingdom and you want to be in that kingdom, you realize your guilt, your need of a Savior. In your heart, do as the dying thief. Cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. Pray like this in your heart. Lord Jesus, I'm that dying thief. I thank you for dying for me. And I now cast myself on your mercy. I trust you to forgive me. To speak that word to me as you spoke it to him. And uh, come into my life. I purpose to follow you. Amen.